Let's pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Dear people of God, today's gospel presents us with a hard saying of Jesus. And no, I'm not talking about Christ's command to hack off and gouge out our sinful body parts. I'm talking about Jesus' hard saying to John. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. The Gospel of Matthew puts it even more forcefully. Matthew writes, whoever gives you a cup of cold water will by no means lose his reward. I want to suggest to you this morning that this cup of cold water is quite often exceedingly difficult for us to swallow. But before we tackle such unpleasantness, let me address the whole amputation business with an, with an assist from the early church fathers. We're told that if hand, foot, or eye causes us to sin, it's better to cut them off from ourselves than end up in hell. St. Augustine, for one, found the parallelism of this passage absolutely terrifying. In the City of God, he writes that our Lord, quote, did not shrink from using the same words three times over in one passage. If your hand causes you to stumble, if your foot causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble. And who is not terrified, Augustine continues, by this repetition and by the threat of that punishment uttered so vehemently by the lips of the Lord himself. St. Basil thought that we ought to be scared. He remarked, do not think that I'm threatening you with false goblins like some mother or nurse, as they are accustomed to do with small children. Whenever the children wail incessantly, they put them to silence by means of bogus tales. But these things I'm telling you are not a fiction. Basil certainly doesn't score any points for throwing moms under the bus there, but his point is an important one. The consequences of sin are real. St. Chrysostom, for his part, reminded his hearers that preachers were duty-bound not to skip over those passages. Yes, he said, I know a chill comes over you, overhearing such difficult things, but what am I to do? For this is God's own command. One of the lessons from today's readings, it seems to me, is that love may need to be severe, even severing at times. But let's be clear, though the consequences of sin are real, Jesus is not actually su suggesting we maim ourselves, of course. I had a theology professor in graduate school who knew of someone who had taken the verse about gouging out one's eye literally. And I will never forget how my professor wept, I mean, he absolutely wept as he told us about him. This may be an obvious point to you, but if it's not, let, let me repeat that the Lord is not inviting us to self-harm. Rather, Jesus, the capital W word, is a wordsmith. He tells stories. He speaks in parables. And here he uses hyperbole and repetition and metaphor, figures of speech, to get our attention and drive his point home. And what's his point? Sin is terribly destructive. It hurts us and others. 
and we ought to distance ourselves from those things that tempt us. When we do turn away from sin, that can hurt too. It's hard to give up those things that sin makes so dear to us. But after the break, new life awaits. If you find yourself as terrified as Augustine, may God grant you a quiet mind, as our collect says for today. Don't forget that our Lord is quick to forgive. And I told Britta, my wife, uh, that I was preaching on these verses about cutting off our sinful parts and asked her what she thought about them. She said, thank goodness for Jesus, <laughs> which is exactly right. May his hard words encur- encourage us to return to him again. I'll have more to say about these verses in a minute, but to do so, I need to turn to Jesus' other hard saying about the cup of water. Why, you may be wondering, is this a hard saying? Serving Jesus by giving somebody something to drink sounds remarkably simple. Isn't this an illustration, and a beautiful one at that, about the simplicity of servanthood in the kingdom of God? Well, yes, but it's also more than that. Jesus, it seems to me, is putting the disciples in their place. And when the disciples are put in their place, we're put in our place too. Context is everything here. At this point in the gospel story, the disciples have yet to fully grasp Jesus' teachings about his kingdom and the power of that kingdom. They want the top spot. In the verses immediately before today's episode, the disciples are arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. And Jesus rebukes them by saying they must lower themselves. The disciples also want to be in control. In the very next chapter, we find them trying to keep children away from Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them again. He essentially says, those people who you think are undeserving, that's who the kingdom of God is for. Let the little ones come to me. And by the way, you ought to be more childlike too. Today, we find the disciples trying to control things again, this time by preventing by preventing an outsider from performing an exorcism in Jesus' name. John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And again, Jesus offers a rebuke. Don't stop him, Johnny. Let him be. Now, I've got to imagine that John and the other disciples were pretty irritated at this point. You may recall that, Shortly before this exchange, the disciples themselves had tried to cast out a demon, and they weren't able to do it. Jesus had to step in. And now, somebody who isn't part of the inner circle comes along and does what they can't. Why? They must have been wondering. Why does this guy have access to Jesus' power? And why does Jesus allow it? This guy's not one of us. We're the ones who have been by Jesus' side day in and day out. Not this Yahoo. But the disciples are slow to learn what the people of God throughout history have been slow to learn is that the power of the kingdom is not ours to control. And it's a strange sort of power indeed. I'm getting to the cup of cold water. But before I do that, let's look at, look at these verses a little more closely to see what we can learn about the power of King Jesus from them. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name 
will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. In allowing an outsider to perform a deed of power in his name, Jesus essentially says to the disciples that his power is bigger than their conception of it. The power of God lives and moves beyond the inner circle of the faithful, beyond their divisions and distinctions, beyond the walls they would erect to keep themselves on top. One commentary I read noted that, quote, God is not only hidden and encountered in the least of these, the children, but also hidden and encountered among those outside Jesus' group of followers. That's remarkable. It's a startling claim for the disciples and for people throughout church history. It led Augustine to speculate that there is, quote, something Catholic outside the church Catholic. <laughs> but there's more. The power of God is a power that's bigger than the outsider, too. Jesus says, do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. The power of God transforms not only the one who is hurting, in this case the demon-possessed man, but also the one through whom God's power flows. The exorcist's work in Christ's name works on him too. He won't be able to speak against the one in whose name the miraculous came about. And now finally we come to, come to it. For truly I tell you, Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. I've often heard this verse quoted as an illustration of what service in the kingdom of God is like. It involves caring for others' needs in simple and practical ways. But note that this verse is not only offering an encouragement to pass out water in Jesus' name. That's a fine thing to do. No, given the preceding verses about leaving the outsider alone, it seems to me that Jesus is saying that such outs outsiders will share in the kingdom, and they will just by giving a cup of cold water to Jesus' followers. Leave the exorcist outsider alone. He's with us. This outsider and even the outsider who gives you a cup of water will earn the reward. That may be a hard saying for the disciples and us. Not only is God's power beyond the disciples' control, not only is an outsider allowed to be an instrument for Jesus' mighty works, not only does an outsider get the reward, but the outsider gets a reward for doing the smallest of tasks, giving a cup of water. And here's the real kicker. According to the economics of Jesus Christ's power, it's not the disciples who are serving the outsider, but the outsider outsiders who are serving the disciples. The outsider may be the one through whom Jesus ministers to the faithful. We tend to think of carrying the good news out, the power of God out into the world, but it can also flow from the outside in, from outsiders to the faithful. To the one who desires control and power, this is a hard saying indeed. But there's a flip side to this story. If we let go of that desire, the desire to be the greatest, to regulate outsiders, to keep the ones who we think are undeserving from the Lord, if we let go of that desire, it's incredibly liberating. Just let go and bear my name, Christ says, and I will work, sustaining you and building the church, even from the outside in. Truly, what could be easier than accepting a cup of cold water from somebody? 
We'll be refreshed for the journey, and they'll get the king's reward. We will have answered in some small and miraculous way the call of the Great Commission. Jesus' power, his mercy, is bigger than the disciples can imagine. And just as the mercy of God is bigger than the disciples' conception of it, so too is the judgment of God. Immediately after Jesus mentions the cup of cold water, he turns to the terrifying bit. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, and so forth. It's as if Jesus is saying, with all the rhetorical flourishes I've already mentioned, stop judging the outsiders and look to your own issues. I'm in charge. Who are you to judge your neighbor, the epistle from James declares. Keep me back from presumptuous sins, lest they have not, let them not have dominion over me, the psalmist writes for today. We see a story that's just remarkably similar to our gospel lesson when we look at today's passage from the Pentateuch. The Israelites are grumbling because they've got no meat. Meat! They want meat. Their cry is a little bit like the three women in that Wendy's commercial from the 80s. Where's the beef, Moses? Where's the beef? It's actually an old Egyptian fish fry that they're craving, but you get the idea. Moses can't bear all the grumbling by himself, and as a result, the Lord offers him help. So Moses went out, and he gathered 70 men of elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. So far, so good. But there's a twist. It turns out not everybody makes it to the tent meeting. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua said, my Lord, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. The parallels to our gospel are clear. Joshua, in this story, is this story's John. And like John, he's rebuked for his presumptuousness about the scope of the spirit's power. That spirit of life that brooded over the face of the waters at the dawn of time and help bring the world into being. It's not confined by our conceptions of holiness. Rather, the spirit blows where it wishes, refreshing as it goes. It blows beyond the tent, through the camp of the Israelites. It blows beyond the 12 disciples to the outsider. And ultimately, it blows beyond the grip of death into the still lungs of the crucified Lord. That gasp for air that brought all humanity up, breaking the surface of the waters of death. And ultimately, the spirit moves beyond all Israel to all the peoples of the world. And suddenly at Pentecost, there came from heaven a sound like a mush, mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance, tongues from every nation under heaven, proclaiming the mighty works of God. And that same Spirit, now dwelling right here within us, will one day refill our lungs and we will rise, look around, and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, crying out with a loud and spirit-filled voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's been a difficult couple of years. At every level of our lives, at every level our lives seem out of, out of whack. COVID has been taking laps around the globe. We're dealing with bitter disagreements at the national level. We've got legacies of injustice in our cities and communities, disruptions in our workplaces, and a painful period in our own church, all on top of the often very difficult challenges of our personal lives. But the Spirit of God, the power of the resurrected Lord, is at work not only in the church but in the world. It's not our power, thanks be to God which means that it may show up in places that upend our expectations. And by it, behold, our Lord is making all things new. Last week, Father James uh, spoke, gave us a beautiful image of our church. It's that painting in the back, painting of the camel. It's a kind of symbol for our identity as a church. Let me add to it an, another image. For this one, you have to go outside. If you go outside, jutting off into the parking lot, you'll see a little bit of grass, and in the middle of that grass, there's a stump. And out of that stump is coming a shoot. It's been a symbol for me this summer for our current moment as a congregation. Behold, I'm making all things new. So friends, let us continue to bear the name of Jesus, seeking not to be greatest but the least, practicing childlike humility, striving to give rather than to receive, and then sometimes letting go and allow, allowing others to give to us that we may receive, even a cup of cold water, so that we may be refreshed on the journey, and they too may inherit the riches of the kingdom. Amen.